Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a solution to manage PowerShell scripts and automate IT tasks via a graphical user interface for helpdesk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. What's up, Yuzi? Hey, Toby. I've been on the road lately. So it was Christmas time before we recorded this episode. And we had a plan with the family to, to fly someplace warm. But to do the pandemic thing, which I think it's 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 everlasting it's never going to end uh we then decided that yeah let's not fly anywhere let's let's rent a cabin a bit far further north from where we live here in finland so we'd stay in the same country but we just travel a bit more north mostly to to get more snow because in the helsinki area which is seaside we don't really get that much snow anymore so it's about 500 kilometers of of driving and it, it went surprisingly well with the three kids. I think they're old enough now to enjoy the quality time in the car. Uh, we got there, everything went well, but it was also a really cold week, even for me as a native Finn. So, so on the coldest afternoon, it went down to minus 25 Celsius, which is about minus wow. 13 Fahrenheit. But being the great parent that I feel that I am, we still went skiing outside even if it was really cold. Yeah, that's nice. So I, I think today we had minus three Celsius. So, you know, the, the water is just about freezing and, you know, it, it's getting cold, but, you know, not even close to 25. Uh, but the kids were still complaining because we're not used to having the cold here in, in that capacity. But it's it's fun with kids because they they yell when they're indoors. They want to go outside and build a snowman. And when we go outside, they say it's cold, and they want to go back inside and and put a log <laughs> on the fireplace. <laughs> yep, yep. So so that's how it goes. So so for me, I actually finally upgraded my gear. I don't know if you can hear that now. I got a new microphone and a new kind of low profile type of microphone arm. Because previously my microphone, when I did the recording here for the podcast, was actually straight in my face. So I could only see half of my screen because I had one of those arms coming in from above, from behind the monitor, kind of something strange like that. Now I have this little profile thing that comes swooping in from the side. It looks pretty good and it doesn't cover anything. I have yet to configure all the options for the microphone, though, because I don't really know much about it. So... Let's see what the result is after this show when I hear it on on Spotify or you know whatever podcast app that I that I will use perhaps on the Sonos speaker. I guess that will be the true evidence whether the upgrade was worth it or not. Other than that, I also bottled up the mulled wine. So I mentioned in a few episodes now that I've for a couple of weeks had some fermentation going on with some mulled wine or in Swedish it's glug. And that was pretty great. So we had it for Christmas and I gave some bottles to families and friends. And I thought this would turn out around eight, nine percent alcohol, but I think it ended up more like 15 to 18 percent, you know, both by tasting it. But also then a friend of mine had one of these alchemeters you can use in liquid to see how strong it is. And that was the indication. So pretty good. 
good results, uh, you know, for being the only the second time I'm doing mold wine. So I'm super happy with that. It was a pretty great experiment, but next time less sugar. So the sugar obviously drives up both the, the alcohol and, and the, the sweetness, but it was pretty sweet. And so next time I'm going to try with less sugar and perhaps more vanilla, like the, these vanilla bars that you yeah. like the real vanilla, vanille stong, like we say in Swedish. I don't know what the actual English name is for that, but you throw a bunch of those in. So next time, perhaps double the amount of those and half the amount of sugar and see if you still get something coming out. Sounds, sounds great. So hopefully a year from now, I could visit Sweden and actually get a taste of this malt wine. Not, not this year's batch, though, but the next year batch. Yeah, or you can get the 2021 vintage, which is this year's, which will be bottled <laughs> up for the next year. I'll keep this in mind. Okay, so today we're talking about uh, options for running containers in Asheron. I know we touched on this a couple of times in the past. So I think this might be a fairly short episode because we're in the middle of the holidays, first of all. But also, we did talk a lot about containers and various options. And we also recently did an episode on what services you can use for your different compute options in, in Azure. So this is slightly differently angled, angled only for containers. Because this is something that I know you get a lot of questions about and I get a lot of questions about it. How do I run my containers? Or I want to lift and shift, or I want to modernize or containerize my workloads. How do I then operate it? So that's kind of the high level thing we want to talk about today. So going in, talking about containers, what's your like go-to? If you picked one service, that would be your go-to service for running containers. What would that be? So recently, I've, I've looked more in depth at the options for running containers in Azure, mostly because... At home, I run a few container-based services that I rely on. One of those is my password manager. Then there's a couple of fun things that I frequently use. And I wanted to migrate these to Azure. So I went through sort of all of the different options that I could, I could use. And I keep coming back to two options. One is the Azure container instances, which is sort of the classic way of running a singular a singular container image in Azure without doing a lot of configuration. The other one, and I, I, I think we've, we've briefly mentioned this perhaps once or twice, that's the Azure container apps that became out in preview during Ignite later this year. But I don't know it that well yet, but having had a quick look at it, it looks really, really promising. So running a container, I, I sort of started thinking with ACI, Azure Container Instances, and now also think about if I could utilize container apps. How about for you? Would you, would you go with the same ones or something else? So for me, and, and I operate quite a few containers in production workloads for globally distributed SaaS applications that we have. So everything in a kind of a microservice architecture. And we make, you know, a lot of deployments to um, ACI as well. So we use Azure Container Instances, and we use a lot of them. And the reason we use those, in you know, as opposed to perhaps AKS or something else, and and I think we mentioned this in a couple of episodes already. We did use AKS at some point, 
we stopped doing it because we need to be able to scale down to zero nodes or, or zero instances, which at the time was not possible with AKS. With ACI, you can just spin it up, run it for whatever time you need, and then you can kill it off and destroy it. So we use Azure Functions to orchestrate the ACIs. So we have a super lightweight Azure function that knows kind of what work needs to be done. And then it just performs the deployment of new ACIs or Azure container instances as required. And we can sometimes spin up 10 containers, sometimes 200 containers, right? Depending on the workload. But, you know, and, and this might be a topic for a different show. There will of course be limitations in doing that. And, and I'm doing this now in the real world. It's not in theory, it's not for a training. We're doing this and operating this 24 seven. You will hit limits. You have subscription limits, you have service limits, you have resource group limits, you have quotas. There's a bunch of things you have to consider when running these things. I just happen to know a lot of the limits of, around ACIs. So that also makes it a lot easier for us to run this reliably in the cloud. For instance, can you create a hundred new nodes in AKS within five minutes? I don't know. Because in, with ACI, you have these kind of constraints saying in one hour, you can only deploy a hundred or if it's 300 container instances. But in 24 hours, the total number is perhaps 300 and per hour it's 100. So if you then get the number saying per hour, you can deploy a hundred, you're like, okay, that's 2,400 per 24 hours, right? But it's not, it's only 300. So you have to be aware of those kind of quotas and limits and, and service uh, limits for each service. So for me, you know, looking at container instances, the limits are fairly high. And also the quota for your subscription can be configured if you file a support request to Microsoft and say, hey, I want to increase the quota for CPU and memory for this thing. And then you, you just specify what it is. And in my case, it's the you know, West Europe and Central US and whatever German region, whatever regions I need for these subscriptions, I want to be able to run container instances and I want to be able to have 500 or 200 or whatever. So that's kind of something to keep in mind as well. And that's going a little bit outside of the actual topic of this, uh, this episode. So I'm going to stop that right there, but please do keep that in mind. You know, whichever of these services that you end up trying out, there will be service limitations. So it's the dialogue is never like when you go to a presentation and someone says, this is serverless, or this is the cloud, infinite scalability, whatever that does not exist. Right. You have to know the quotas, you have to know the service limits because the cloud, containers, serverless, it's, you know, it's a computer running somewhere else, right? So it's still a computer and there's still hardware and there's still network constraints and all these things. Uh, so that's something to be aware of. But to answer the question, you had a very simple question and that is what was your favorite uh, or, or my top pick? And coming back to that, that's the ACI because we do use it in production workloads a lot. So I, I know a lot about it. I fought a lot with it to make it reliable and you know just work in all these different situations. Um, but that said, it's not. It's like with a good stock. Like if you go to the stock market, you should never fall in love with a stock, you know, because it's performing well today doesn't mean it's going to perform well tomorrow. So don't fall in love with the share. You know, fall in love with the company. That's kind of what you say in the stock market. And the same thing here. I I fell in love with the solution we're building. But I don't care if it's running on ACI or AKS or you know con container apps or you know whatever. 
So um, I keep an open mind here. And, you know, the choice of platform for the technology that we are building is second to the business case. But again, the, the ACI is my top pick. And if I get to select a second pick, which I just did, Azure Container Registry, because obviously to run your container images, you should deploy them somewhere. You can use a bunch of third party, you can use Docker Hub, you can host them anywhere else. For me, because everything is already inside of Azure, then it's just natural for me to also deploy an ACR to the deployment, put the images inside of ACR and just secure everything within Azure and you know have everything within the, the realm and the constraints of the security controls that we already have in place. So yeah, a fairly long answer to your short question. I apologize for that. <laughs> no, no, this this makes perfect sense. How how I sort of approach this is that AKS, the Kubernetes service, as well as the Azure Red Hat OpenShift, they they are fairly fairly majestic services in in so far that you really have to learn and 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 dive deep into understanding how the services work so that you can manage and and, and operate them. As opposed to something like ACI, there's not too many moving parts, even if there are, but it's super easy to just select a container, press play, and it runs. And I feel the same applies to web app for containers, spin up an app service with, with, with the application plan, and that's it. You mentioned the Azure Functions, and this is perhaps one of those services that I use less for running containers. I use them for running whatever code, but to, to package my code in a container and then have it execute through Azure Functions, it's an interesting approach to have this event-driven capabilities executed in a container. But beyond this, I, I think the only one out of all of these options we can use to run containers that I've never really used in production is Azure Service Fabric. Have you used that recently or ever? Ever, yes. Um, I did some R&D with that uh, at some point. For production workloads, no, I have not. I, I do hear people use this now and then, but most of the companies that I'm in touch with and people in our community don't even mention it. When you ask about container workloads or how do you deploy containers to Azure, very seldom I hear someone mention Azure Service Fabric. I don't know if there's a specific reason for that, if the marketing is not good enough or, you know, you know if, if they're not really beating that drum or if they're not updating the product or the service in, in a high cadence, or maybe they're just not promoting it at all. I don't know. I know it's there. I also know that, you know, people deploy things here. And I recently had a discussion with someone and you, you kind of hear them say that they deploy and operate these kind of always on super scalable distributed apps. That's it. And then you can do a lot of things within that. Um, and I did speak with someone at Microsoft working a bit with the service fabric. So I think, you know, to, to not confuse anyone with that, because I don't know much about it, perhaps we should invite them to the show to actually have a dedicated episode on that to see what are the container options when actually using service fabric. Um, but the short short answer to the question is no. I, I've got no idea, you know, where customers use it, where people use this in production. We don't use it in production at all. I I had one project uh, that was in the planning phase, and we did have the option to choose between AKS, Service Fabric, or even using an on-premises solution. 
and and we did have a dialogue with Microsoft about this as well. And and the implication sort of was that yes, service fabric definitely an option, but perhaps it's not optimal for a lot of use cases where you could simply use AKS, mostly because service fabric is is the sort of fabric that that's being used to build Azure services themselves, as opposed to AKS being the solution to also allow you to do multi-cloud. So you can deploy whatever you like in Azure, but later on, if you want to migrate everything to AWS, it's still an option because you can run Kubernetes there as well, but you couldn't run Service Fabric in AWS or Google Cloud or anywhere else. What I, what I also look at, and, and again, I'm not coming from the technology perspective here saying, I love this thing, or I love that thing, and therefore I will promote it, or therefore I will, you know, beat the the drum of this thing because, just like a, you know, when I spent a lot of time as a developer, it was I love this framework, I love this thing, therefore, you know, I always look at the business requirements, and and you know that's my job as well. I need to look at the business requirements first, and then see how it fits in. One thing that those business requirements dictate often is, you know, not just does this solution technically can solve the problem that we have, but how actively is it maintained, right? Do you see regular service updates? And I don't talk about monthly or quarterly or something like that. I talk about, do you see a constant push to this service? Do you see a lot of hype around it? Do you see every department in Microsoft pushing updates about it or talking about it or writing documentation about how to integrate with it. If so, you know, it's supported, it's well-supported, it's well-documented, there's a huge community around it. Things like that also weigh into the factor when I make my decisions. So, you know, out of all the options there, there is to run container workloads on Azure, it's not just a cost or the simplicity of deploying it. It is also the ecosystem that you have around it. Because for me, when I make an executive or a strategical decision that for the next X years, we're going to run in this technology or platform, because let's face it, it's going to be more expensive to just keep shifting and changing things than to just go with it. Um, and if it's a slightly more expensive option that I'm running today, but I know that you know there's such a huge pool of resources, knowledge, communities, blogs, documentation, you know, frequent updates to security patching and service updates and stuff like this, that might actually be the better option. Sure, it might cost a little bit more, doesn't matter. If on the bottom line, I know that this will be the most reliable option for the X amount of years ahead, you know, always with, of course, the, the critical uh, risk thinking, you always have kind of a risk matrix in, in the back of your head saying, this service might be deprecated in three months, right? Then what do we do? So you should always have a kind of the contingency plan, but, you know, not thinking that will happen, thinking long-term, the money and, and stuff like this, maintainability, and how would you say the freshness of the service or, you know, the pulse of the service or how you would call it uh, is super important for me because, you know, over the last 20 years in this business, I have selected technologies at some point and I just went with it. And at some point we realized, well, there hasn't been an update to this thing for now two years and we're still using it. Super hard. You have to find workarounds because you're deploying a new server. 
you want your applications to run on that server, but that doesn't work because you're using legacy technology and then this and then this and then this. So these things super important. So therefore, you know, it, while a ACI, like I just mentioned, is you know my go-to solution for a lot of things, you know, a lot of these other things like AKS that we also used a lot in the past might be more expensive for some of the things that we do in our scenarios. But I also know that it's extremely well supported. There is a great community around it. There is a lot of service updates coming on the Azure side, security patchings, guidelines, best practices. These things are invaluable. It's not just about the you know, choice of technology. It's also about how do you put that into the business and not just the developer or the IT pros or the DevSecOps, uh, you know, not the technologists, but also the decision makers. And you know, the budget holders and how do you make sure that you justify this decision, not just to the tech stack, but also to the entire business, if your entire business, like in my case, actually relies on it. I, I couldn't resist. I had to open Azure updates to see what the latest update is for Azure Service Fabric. And it is from, checking it now, November 2020. So okay. so, so <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been about 13 months since the last major update to service fabric and this is not to say that no never use service fabric that's not the point but the point being it's mature enough now but perhaps you need to compare the different options based on a lot of the things you just said in addition to to all of these sort of cloud native approaches i i wanted to add one more which is still used i'm not sure how much this is used but it's it's a viable option spin up a virtual machine or a bunch of VMs in a, in a VM scale set and run your containers within those VMs to so definitely support it. But a quick search to docs.microsoft.com didn't really bring this up as, as a sort of top three option. So I, I, I feel this is sort of like a mixed approach. If you cannot embrace something like Kubernetes or ACI or web app for containers, but you need to get stuff up and running in Azure, and perhaps you rely on certain bits on a VM, then this last option is, is definitely something you can look into. It's not my number one option I would use, but it's, it's good to know you sort of have this, uh, this backup approach, if you will, if, if everything else fails. Yeah, and, and there's actually, I, I know that there is one place on the uh, documentation on, on the Microsoft website that talks about spinning up a Windows server uh, with Docker installed. So I, I want to brush on that in a minute as well. I just want to rehash like all the options because we, we spent some time now talking about the, some of the options and, and a lot of things around it and thinking about it. But just like a, a, the list of all the options that we talked about or that does exist um, in Azure is AKS or Azure Kubernetes Services, Azure Red Hat OpenShift, Azure Container Apps, Azure Functions where you can then run uh, Docker containers as well web apps for containers. So you can run containerized web apps on Windows and Linux. Uh, Azure Container Instances that we talked a lot about in our show, uh, where you launch containers uh, with this hypervisor isolation that is uh, a pretty good thing for you know the entire security and things like that, which we might also spend a, some time on in a different episode, perhaps. Azure Service Fabric that we talked about. Azure Container Registry. I know we talked about this also in a couple of episodes which is perhaps not the, the service that operates your 
actual workload, but it's supporting that in building, storing, securing, and kind of replicating your container images and artifacts. Uh, and then virtual machine with container capabilities. And what you just said here, where you spin up a VM and you install Docker and you run things, got me thinking about something called the content containerization decision tree for legacy Windows applications. Now, that is a, a funny thing that I wanted to, to talk about, like a short use case, because so now we know about all these options and now everyone can go take a look. Okay, these things are things I want to you know, invest time in, in understanding. One thing that I spent quite some time recently talking with uh, several customers and, and partners in the industry about is like, how can I lift and shift my Windows uh, applications to containers? You know, the reasons they want to go to containers is multifold. Sometimes it's because someone at Microsoft told them you need to go, con go do containers and then someone put a tick box on the thing and they need to do that. In other cases, it's just they realize if we make this work inside of any type of container option in Azure, we can keep running our legacy application on our legacy code without actually doing any major upgrades. And that is what we call a lift and shift. And I know we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, uh, also when we talked about the compute workloads in Azure, uh, where you can also migrate with lift and shifts. You basically take what you have, put that in a new package, but you don't actually change the components or the code and you make it run in the cloud. So the decision tree for kind of modern, modernizing your current Windows apps and workloads, uh, which you can also plug into containers, would follow kind of these, uh, the, the following thought process. So does, does it support, uh, does your application support uh, Windows Server 2016 or later? Right, so can it be deployed there? If no, well, then you're, I'm sorry, you're out of options. <laughs> then, you can, <laughs> then you cannot run it on containers on Windows. So, so you can stop right there. So if it does not work on server 2016 or later, you know, full stop. If it is supported on 2016 or later, then the next question would be, does the application require a, a graphical user interface, you know, drivers or Windows infrastructure roles like print, exchange, domain controllers, or stuff like this? If yes, also not supported, right? So, so if any of those things are also, yes, 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 I need this, then I'm sorry, no. Then you don't containerize that on a Windows container. Then it might just, you know, be a VM that you're looking for. Um, if you don't need that, then the next question is, does the application require the .NET framework? And I'm saying not .NET Core, I'm saying .NET framework, like the, the kind of legacy .NET. If yes, and, and your app is running that, then the next question is, is it version two or three? Then you can test running .NET framework on a 3.5 container image on Windows Server Core, because you have .NET framework 3.5 container images. You can run that on Windows Server Core. If you're on .NET Framework version four of something, you can test with .NET Framework four container images on Windows Server Core. If you're not on .NET Framework, but instead on the .NET Core uh, or, or .NET five or six, then you can test with, you know, just a side note there. If you're on .NET 5 or 6, you might not consider this a legacy Windows application, you know, de depending on when you built it. But if you're on .NET Core or later, you can test with that .NET Core on Windows Nano Server container images because that's supporting that. 
And then the question would be, after you've done that, after you test to see if your application can run in any of these type of containers, the question would be, are you ready to lift and shift, right? Does it work? If yes, you know, if no, then okay, out of options again. Uh, if yes, then the next question is, do you need an orchestrator to kind of handle scaling in, scaling out and all these things, depending on uh, events, depending on, you know, resources consumed, depending on how many requests are coming in, stuff like that. If no, then you can do, and, and this is kind of what led me here, then you can do a Windows server with Docker installed, right? And then you can have that, you spin up your VM, you have a Windows server and you have Docker installed and then you deploy it there. And, and that's a totally viable option, right? If you do need an orchestrator, uh, the question would be, do you require this to be on-premises? If no, then you can use AKS or Service Fabric that we talked about, you know, depending on a lot of variables, of course. If you do require this on-premises, then it's AKS, which you can run on-prem, or Azure Stack HCI. So, so there's this kind of decision tree for getting your legacy Windows applications up and running in the cloud as containers. And I just wanted to get that in there because we just talked about all the options that exist, but this is something that I hear a lot of customers talk about because I live in the Microsoft ecosystem. You live in the Microsoft ecosystem. A lot of people tuning into this show live in the Microsoft ecosystem. And there's a fairly good chance that someone listening in right now is sitting and thinking about how do we move this legacy Windows monolith application, or it might even be a microservice architecture application. Probably not though, if it's a legacy Windows app running on a server, running on a, on a machine somewhere. How do you move that to the cloud? How do you get that containerized? Or how do you kind of package that up in a more reusable way? So this might be an option. So um, to sum that up, images for .NET Framework, the full edition or .NET Core or later, could run then on Windows Server Core or uh, Windows Nano Server, depending on yeah, what type of framework you're running on. And then depending on the outcome of your testing here, uh, you might have a viable option for deploying this on any of the things I just mentioned. So I, I really like this uh, decision three flowchart approach because it, it, it visualizes the, the somewhat complex decisions you have to make and and it it makes it look also more approachable i'm i'm already envisioning myself sitting in a in a full day workshop with with a customer we sit down we get the coffee and then we, we start going through the flow chart is the application supported on windows or 2016 or later the customer goes no all righty and, thanks and for the, the workshop, workshop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we can do something else for the rest of the day but but even then I, I like that there's so many options, but it's it's still holding your hand at the same time to, to bring you to a conclusion. Is it going to be a VM running Docker or are you going to use an orchestrator? That's essentially the choices that you're making here. Per, perhaps there are some edge cases here and there, such as you have an application running on a Windows server, you need to migrate and lift and shift that to Azure but you might not need to run that in a container. So you could use something like a web job if it's sort of a scheduled task. But more or less, you often rely on, on, on files and logs and directories on a Windows system. And that often sort of enforces and, and uh, 
forces you to, to use a Docker-based approach here. So, so beyond this, how do I actually do this? How do I containerize the app? So, I mean, there's multiple options for that. If, if we're still talking about Windows applications, then, then you have to decide on the base image, like a nano server or Windows server core, um, you know, determine the, the type of container, uh, process isolated, hypervisor isolated, stuff like that, whatever security configurations you have and, and the requirements you have, like group managed service account or GMSAs, stuff like this. And then you actually containerize this. And, and I guess this is where the, how do I do that comes into play? Well, you can do that multiple ways. And um, it, it all depends on what your application looks like. Are you building a new app? Are you trying to lift and shift an existing app? And if you're trying to lift and shift an existing app, then depending on what that app is, in our recent episode, I don't recall the number right now, where we talked about choosing the correct Azure Compute workload for your, uh, or compute service for your workloads. We also talked about, um, you know, the, the tool that can help you kind of package your legacy or existing web application into a Docker container, right? So there is a tool for that. If you're looking for Windows applications specifically, I don't know if there's an actual tool that will do the entire grunt work for you, but containerizing an application can be done fairly easily, uh, also manually. I have manually packaged all the container apps we run in our cloud because I really want to know everything that goes in it. Um, so even if you're starting from scratch, it should be fairly easy to uh, at least, you know, high level, uh, pick the components you need, plug them in, and and see how that goes. Um, but coming back to uh, you know, if we're if again we're talking about Windows app, remember the second question I I asked in the in the kind of flowchart thing, like does the application require a GUI or a graphical user interface? If yes, then it's not supported for Windows app. So if you do have a legacy Windows application that is running console app only or just with you know text output whatever. Or, or like a, a task or running as a background worker, you know, that's totally cool. You can evaluate that. If it's requiring a GUI or, or some kind of user interaction through a graphical user interface, then you're out of luck. So it depends here, of course, on uh, what kind of workload you're trying to package as a container. And, so, there, and, and there's also the option that if you have an application that perhaps a bunch of users still need to use that requires a GUI, you could then utilize Azure Virtual Desktop, then the, the VDI approach there, or Windows 365, which is the sort of more lightweight VDI approach. But this is, this is more for serving the users or the specific need as opposed to migrating an application so that it would run in the cloud regardless of the users. Okay, um, I, I think I'm more clear now on, on the options that I have for, for running the containers in, in the cloud, but also on how to lift and shift specifically Windows containers. The, the last thing we have is the unexpected question. And, and today it's going to be my turn to ask you, Toby. Uh, it's almost 2022. What's the one thing you'd like to learn during the next year, assuming time, energy, focus, and other factors in life didn't stop you? This is a very good question. I have a lot of answers to this one. From the top of my head, I can tell you a dozen things already now. It can be more uh, than one. So I'll, I'll go with my top 
top one thing is learn to play the piano. And I'm saying that because I know how to play the piano, but I'm self-taught and I am using the wrong fingers in the wrong places according to classical training. And, you know, as soon as I, I started looking at more advanced stuff, it's like they do these magical things with the fingers. I'm like, that's not how I use my fingers. I use my fingers like, like it's my keyboard for my, for my computer, right? So I, so I have a, a slightly different kind of layout because nobody told me how to play the piano. Uh, I, I taught myself to play the guitar, the saxophone, the trumpet, the baritone, the trombone, the piano. So I play all sorts of instruments and I play them fairly well, but I'm, I'm not expert level on any of them. I am good, but that's it. So I, I never really got over the, the, you know, how do I go from good to, to advanced or from good to expert? And with the piano, I, I have this Zen mode or, you know, a moment of serenity when I play on the piano because I, I don't read the notes. I know how to read notes or I, I taught myself that for the trumpet, you know, 25 years ago or something. Perhaps I don't know it anymore but I could learn it. But for the piano, it's just feelings, right? I, I understand how it works. I, I spent four hours just watching a YouTube video for introducing scales on a piano. And at that point, I already knew how to play the guitar. So I understood, you know, what are the accords? How do they work? I understand how they relate to one another. The only thing I needed to understand is how can I make my fingers do what my brain wants to do? And that was kind of the tricky part. So uh, again, a long answer to a short question, but uh, I'd love to, uh, to learn to play the piano perhaps properly so I could really go in, into the classical bits and you know, wreak havoc with, uh, with those because I, I really do enjoy playing the piano. So I think that's one. And then of course I have a, a bunch of other things. If I could have one more thing that I would like to learn, it is how to create a like carbon negative environment friendly type of blockchain with distributed apps that could serve you know future deployment and future businesses instead of you know today today's world of cryptocurrencies and distributed apps and blockchains that are consuming so much energy that it's you know becoming a real problem so i, I would love to learn how to do like a, a carbon negative type of blockchain that has a business impact where you can see real traction and actually get a lot of people uh, jumping on board onto that. So obviously I'm looking for the next multi-billion dollar idea. So if, if you have any ideas how to fix that, then <laughs> let me know. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's it. So the, these, these two are really, really excellent options I, I really like the piano piano playing uh approach um this this might be something for me as well hopefully next year but it might be two years from now really dive deep into sort of continuing to play the piano getting better at it and also enjoying that because i i i feel that that doing music is uh is a nice counterbalance to to doing whatever you do in it for your work at the same time Alrighty, this was episode 114, Options for Running Containers in Azure. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you join us next week as well. All right, see you then.
Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.